Hi, everyone. Today is our second episode in our mini series about Tolkien and his influence on Ren and Hellborn. Today, we are going into more in depth about how Tolkien's works influenced Hellborn's works. So, the first question I have here is Tolkien's world building is inspired from history and medieval literature, particularly Old Norse. How do you see this influence in his writings? Right. Um, this is, uh, it, it's great to be here and talk about uh, Tolkien again, because he is uh, uh, one of my favorite writers ever. And like I said last time, the, the one who influenced me the most. And uh, well, even my name, Helleborn, uh, comes from a place in Tolkien's Legendarium. He, it, it was a lake, it means black glass. So um, back when I was a teenager and I was uh, uh, really fascinated and discovering all the lore. Um, I really loved the sound of it and what it means as a name for a lake. So I started using this as my username. So uh, yeah, this is why I've been using this for, I, I don't even know how many years, but it's something like, I don't know, since before 2010. So yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Right. And you also started out um, on DeviantArt with a lot of Tolkien fan art, right? Indeed, that was before I started drawing my own characters. Uh, I was drawing um, mostly fan art and uh, things that inspired me. A lot of uh, my interpretations of Norse mythology, for example. So um, I'm going to share my screen right now and I'm going to show you on my DeviantArt page, um, Hellevorn Art, a few drawings that I have with uh, Tolkien's characters. Uh, they're obviously from uh, the movies and not directly as how I imagined them from the books. But uh, yeah, you can see here Gandalf, uh, Glowing, Arwen, uh, the, the Witch King, and uh, Luthien from the, um, uh, from the story of Beren and Luthien. And then we have from The Hobbit, uh, we have Gloin and here Balin. So, uh, and Thranduil, sorry, the Elven King Thranduil, mm -hmm. this one. So, um, I also used to do maps because I was fascinated by Tolkien's maps. So, here I have a really huge map of Middle-earth, which I really enjoyed drawing. It, it was really big. Uh, I sold it wow. on Etsy, so I don't have it. But this was really difficult to make because it had a lot of details and because the, uh, the paper was very rough and textured. Uh, it, it, it was sort of felt like a textile map wow. so it, it was really interesting but it was kind of difficult to make if i were to make it again uh, i would know how to better work with that kind of paper right now so as not to take <laughs> so many hours that it did but i remember that i was playing the soundtrack from lord of the rings over and over again while doing this so yeah wow um, 
Yes, yeah, so this is from the time when I was a, a huge fan and I still am, but I was manifesting it in my works, in my writing, in my uh, illustrations, sorry. Mm-hmm. And now I'm mostly illustrating my own characters, as you know. Right, right. So that was a great starting point. So Tolkien not only influenced you to think more about the themes and the historical aspects of your own work, but also in terms of, I would say, scope, right? World building, because you were fascinated by his maps. Oh, yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Right. So world building is something that we don't often hear in regards to historical works. We usually associate it with fantasy or alternative history. So is it because your own writings draw on the same source as Tolkien of old Norse literature? And this is why you, like him, kind of did a little bit of world building in your own historical series, even though it is not fantasy. Mm, I think it may be true. And also I think that the further a setting is to the present day, the more world building you need because the world was much more different from our own. So you have to uh, to do more in the way of explaining it to the readers. So because I write about the Middle Ages, then yes, I think that I do need more world building than I would if I was writing in, say, Victorian England. So, right. yeah, this is definitely one of the reasons. Right. And I think world building is necessary to, you know, give yourself an idea of how your characters are going to act and what kind of clothes they will wear. And, you know, just like kind of give a feel of immersion for yourself and later the reader. At the same time, you know, you don't want to overwhelm your reader with too much information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. So this is how I uh, learned from Tolkien and the way in which he did his own world building because, or or at least in the way he drew his inspiration from the old Norse literature, because he did not copy, copy paste that information that he was reading and that he knew very well as a specialist in old Norse himself. Um, He just sort of translated it into his own world so that uh, you don't immediately recognize that it is so influenced from the old Norse world. And Mm -hmm. in a way, I think this is sort of what I did, even though, uh, well, (laughs) my own world is obviously supposed to be recognizable as medieval Scandinavia, otherwise we have a problem, (laughs) but... (laughs) Uh, What I mean by this is that I always tried not to overwhelm the reader when it comes to the amount of information that I offer, because I think that historical fiction is not supposed to, to teach the reader what medieval Scandinavia was like, because they can read that in an academic research paper if they want to, but rather what we have to do is is give the reader an idea of how the characters acted, how the society worked, uh, what it was like for characters to live there, how did their experiences influence their uh, inner realities. Mm -hmm. So this is mostly this is what is the most important in in well pretty much any work of fiction I think and uh, of course in fantasy literature you would need more emphasis on world building to uh, uh, 
you know, to, to sort of show off what you did there. But in historical fiction, I don't think it is as important, even though uh, you definitely need more world building for historical fiction mm -hmm. than for anything else other than fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, what Tolkien did, in other words, was capture the essence of the Old Norse world and put it into his, into his writings seamlessly. And this is also what I try to do. This is why in my writings, you are not going to find uh, fragments like um, this uh, king came to power in this year and he did this and that, mm -hmm. and that he had three sons and they did this and that. This is not the way in which we learn about the history. Right, so I, I'm trying not to do that. We, we're going to learn through dialogues uh, between other characters and um, through uh, uh, the plot. So mostly we're focusing on character psychology, character interactions mm -hmm. and social attitudes. Right. So uh, this is something that that I was always really fond of. So, and, and this is actually uh, one, uh, uh, one aspect that uh, I find that some pieces of fiction inspired from the same Norse world are lacking. You know, for example, in a show like Vikings, <laughs> yes, they do have some facts right, you know, that this guy was a king there and he was fighting the other guy. But then the characters often act very unnaturally and they would say things and do things that no Norse person would do. So... I think that is the worst mistake than, uh, you know, messing up the facts a bit. Mm -hmm. That's or not true. Being very clear about who was king or not describing a Viking ship in detail or the armor or mm -hmm. the weapons in detail. So, yeah, perhaps after you read a novel of mine, you will not be able to, uh, to, to, to speak a series of facts about what the weapons were like and the armor and uh, <laughs> Viking ship and the, the components of a Viking ship, right? So this is not what you're going to learn, but you're going to have a pretty good impression of how society worked. Right, exactly. And that's a good balance because I feel like, you know, as you said before, some other books and forms of media, they just focus a lot on the little details. And this is what a lot of people who are not into historical fiction assume historical fiction is all about just like, you know, a delineation of facts for people who are experts in the area or people who are really interested in something very specific, like what swords look like in ninth century France or something. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think uh, it's, well, it's not really a misconception because a lot of works of historical fiction are like that, but this doesn't mean that it is really a requirement of the genre. You can, mm -hmm. you can take a setting and illustrate it in whatever way you feel relevant. Exactly. I mean, you could do it with, you know, modern day stuff too. Like someone could just talk about something very, you know, very specialist, like, oh, this is how stocks work in this kind of company organization and for like 50 pages you could do that yeah that's a great point yeah exactly not just history but people are intimidated by history as I said on the Instagram preview a lot of people who went to school 
they did not like history classes. They thought it was very difficult. There were too many dates to memorize. And I think maybe this influences them to be scared of historical fiction. Yes, I think so. I think so. When I was in school as well, I, I was really not fond of historical fiction lessons. Because, exactly. Exactly for this reason, because I had to learn all sorts of details that I did not find interesting. And I always found uh, them hard to memorize, mm -hmm. you know, to, to enumerate things and dates and stuff. Mm -hmm. so, but then as I started reading on my own, I realized that I'm very interested in society and mentalities mm -hmm. and behaviors. And so this is what I started to focus on in history as well. And so uh, because I was interested in these things in our own world, uh, this is what I started to see in other periods, you know, mm -hmm. what people think about this and that, right. and I don't know what century and culture. Mm hmm. Exactly. So your own writings draw on the same source as Tolkien of Old Norse literature. And was this choice to focus on Old Norse literature in Lucky Wolf and the Sons of Disobedience influenced by Tolkien? Yes, I think it was very much influenced by him because before I started reading Tolkien, I wasn't uh, into medieval Scandinavia specifically. Uh, I, I liked history in general, I mean, historical fiction, historical settings in general, but uh, I wasn't really into this. And uh, shortly after I started reading uh, Tolkien, I started listening to Viking metal as well. And I think these were turning points because uh, it soon became an obsession for me, mm -hmm. <laughs> this uh, Old Norse and Anglo-Saxon uh, part of of the world mm -hmm. so yeah I, I think it was influenced by Tolkien right because Tolkien I, I is he more influenced by Old Norse or Anglo-Saxon yeah. or equally because as we talked about before the dwarves were mostly Old Norse right but I think maybe some of the other cultures of Middle Earth were more Anglo-Saxon or Germanic uh Old Norse is his main influence. Yeah, I think uh, in in Tolkien's scholarship, this is the the general consensus that Old Norse is uh, is his most important influence. Of course, he did Tolkien did specialize in English philology, uh, but Old Norse was his special subject, so so mm. to speak. So he uh, he also taught. Uh, you know, old, old, old Icelandic and uh, Germanic philology and uh, Gothic. But of course, he was uh, also a professor of uh, um, Old English and, and Middle English. So it, mm -hmm. it was a combination of both. But he was very much uh, passionate about this, uh, um, this realm of Old Norse literature. And he founded uh, the the Viking Club, it was called, and it was a, a reader group where people would gather and read uh, old, uh, old Norse literature. And he also had another group called the Kolbitar, which means Kolbiters, which is a name found in sagas. It is in Old Norse, where, uh, you know, people who spend a lot of time idling around the fire telling stories and stuff. And so this was also a, a, a group focused on reading uh, Old Norse literature. And he also introduced C.S. Lewis 
to Old Norse literature. And mm. this is how the Old Norse influences came to be in uh, Lewis's own work. Right. That's interesting because both of them in a way were also influenced by Christianity because both of them were kind of like Christian fantasy authors in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, uh, Tolkien was also uh, always a devout Christian, but then Lewis had his, uh, well, you know, he was on and off uh, into this, but then somehow his own work was more uh, obviously influenced by uh, Christian uh, mythology uh, overall. So it's it, it shows less in Tolkien. Tolkien's, I think, feels much more pagan, so to speak. That's true. And this is why actually some, you know, conservative Christians, they were okay with Narnia, which was by C.S. Lewis, but they were not okay with Lord of the Rings or anything by Tolkien because it felt more pagan. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And this is mostly because, uh, because of the Old Norse influence mm -hmm. on Tolkien's writing. So he, uh, he wanted very much uh, to, uh, uh, to, to reproduce or, uh, a lot of aspects of it, even though he was sort of reluctant to acknowledge uh, direct overlaps between his writing and his academic career, or so he says in his letters. But it is obvious that so many things are, uh, are influenced by this. So uh, we mentioned in the Instagram live the uh, so-called catalog of dwarves, which appears in uh, the Poetic Edda um, in Voluspa. And um, that, uh, that was a poem written in the 10th century. And uh, it, it's sort of a, so before uh, Norway was, uh, and Iceland were converted to Christianity. So there is a whole section dedicated to dwarves uh, where they enumerate names, you know, Thorin, Dwalin, Gloin, Bombur, uh, Balin, uh, I think he's called Blain not instead of Balin, but Tolkien changed it. And also Gandalf, which is interesting because Gandalf was listed as a dwarf, but his name actually means magic elf. So oh. and Tolkien <laughs> made him a wizard, which is a separate race in his, uh, in his mythology. So um, yes, yeah, so what, what Tolkien did, he took those names, which are really randomly, they're just enumerated and nothing is said about the dwarves. And then he gave them stories and personalities that he actually made them characters in his own stories. So this is one of the things, uh, one of the most obvious things that uh, Tolkien takes from that. And um, of course, he, you know, there is the, uh, the eye of Sauron, which is all seeing, and uh, it's very much like the eye of Odin in um, Old Norse literature. And then we have uh, the Balrog, which is sort of a, well, sort of a demon of fire. And uh, we have Surtr, the giant of fire in, uh, um, the, um, the Old Norse world. Uh, and then we can also have, uh, you know, the dragons, obviously. And this is another thing that Tolkien took from, uh, um, from Volsunga saga, for example, the, the, saga, the saga of the Volsungs. Um, and they have those 
unnervingly human-like dragons, as, as they are called in uh, by, by Tolkien scholars, because uh, th this is exactly how they appear in uh, Old Norse sources as well. They speak to their slayers, so they have this ability to speak just as in, in Tolkien's. You know, we have Smaug in The Hobbit, and we have Glaurung in The a Tale of the Children of Húrin. So uh, actually the, the part with Túrin and Glaurung the dragon is Tolkien's retelling of the saga of the Volsungs. So in a way, uh, they have many similarities. Mm -hmm. So um, this is another thing that Tolkien took from, directly from Old Norse mythology. And then we have something like, so something less specific now. Um, you know, there is that scene in The Hobbit, the, the riddles in the dark part, as the chapter is called, mm -hmm. where Bilbo is uh, uh, ha has found the ring and he has it in his pocket and he meets Gollum. And Gollum is trying... Uh, you know, he doesn't want to, to let Bilbo out of the caves. And so they engage in an exchange of riddles. Um, and this is a motif in Old Norse literature, uh, very often seen. So um, even though nowadays we might regard the riddles as something childish, uh, back then it was a thing of, of wisdom to be able to tell and to answer to riddles. And so often it was, uh, this exchange was placed in life uh, threatening situations, so to speak. So the, uh, uh, the stakes are very high. If you're not able to answer the riddles, you're going to die, for example. And so there is this scene in the saga of King Heidrek, where Odin appears in disguise to King Heidrek, and they engage in this series of riddles. And then um, at the end, because Odin feels like he is losing the game, um, he says, uh, what did Odin whisper into Baldr's ear when he died? <laughs> Which is, of course, something that only Odin would know because, well, <laughs> Odin uh, whispered something to into his dead son's ear, right? So mm -hmm. that's not really a riddle, is it? How no. is anybody else and himself supposed to know? But of course, Odin is in disguise, so King Heidrek doesn't know that he is actually tricking him. And this is exactly what Bilbo does, because he feels that he is losing, and he knows that he would be losing his life. The last riddle that he says is, what have I got in my pocket? And of course, Gollum cannot know what's in his pocket. So this is something that Tolkien directly borrowed from, uh, from this. And it's, uh, it's very interesting because it's cheating, isn't it? As, <laughs> as Gollum would say, it is a tricksy question, right? So, but in Old Norse terms, this is actually Seder, dark magic, the magic of deceit. This is why Odin is doing it. He's very much a trickster himself. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, say that is also the the kind of magic that Elf does. Exactly. Novel, right. <laughs> and 
this is one place where I also borrowed the something directly from, well, both Old Norse literature and Tolkien, right? The game of riddles, because we have a scene in Lucky Wolf where Eolf is young and he, um, uh, he tells riddles to uh, two young women, uh, well, not young, right? two middle-aged women, and then he steals from them. So riddles are paired with wisdom and with uh, playing tricks on somebody, right? Cheating mm -hmm. on somebody. So mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. I didn't know that so many of these smaller details were directly influenced by, you know, old Norse things. Yeah, that's true. So, so there is a whole worldview put into Tolkien's writings, and it's so formidably well understood and internalized because it's not, you know, some names mm -hmm. or the race of the dwarves or something where, where he would just uh, copy paste the characteristics, you know, mm -hmm. of something. It's just capturing the, the essence and uh, the, that sense of uh, fatalism and the heroism, which is also very much in common with the Anglo-Saxon worldview as well, because these two cultures were very similar at the time. They, they would have been more similar if they had more similar experiences, right? So uh, Norway or Scandinavia in general was more isolated and it was Christian later. So uh, England was also influenced by uh, the continent and by the Christian faith. But if, if you take all that away, they were actually extremely similar, just as the languages were extremely similar. So sometimes it is difficult to... Uh, well, to, to, to draw a, a fine line between what is Anglo-Saxon and what is Old Norse in terms of mentality. That's true, right? So it's really the superficial stuff that makes them look different. Yeah, I think so. In, in, in some cases, yes. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it's interesting how he internalizes a lot of these concepts. So that makes for better world building. And it's more smooth and more streamlined. Because like you said, if he just copy and pasted directly from an old Norse culture, it would just feel like he's superimposing, you know, Norse aesthetics onto something he created himself rather than internalizing it, digesting it, and actually injecting different aspects of it on every level of his world. Yes, yes, that is very true. That is very true. And, and that is one reason why so many things, uh, so many fantasy things uh, set about to portray some cultures or openly draw their inspiration from some cultures, then people from those cultures do not feel represented. And I'm thinking here of Disney, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's not... Well, it's not that well internalized, right? That that culture that they are supposed to to draw their inspiration from. So, but then with Tolkien, well, of course, we don't have a medieval Scandinavian to really tell us if they feel represented or not. <laughs> but I think he's doing a great job, considering that the information is well quite scarce. Mm -hmm. That's true. And maybe this is one of the reasons why he chose to turn it into fantasy, because it is sparse and he wanted to put mm -hmm. his own ideas into it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Did he, you he ever, sorry. Write, yeah. 
Oh yeah, I, I just wanted to say that he uh, he put it in these terms that he wanted to write a mythology for England, and so oh. he drew inspiration from the uh, Germanic past, which was common, of course, between uh, England and Scandinavia and all Germanic peoples. So this is why he uh, he used old Norse sources, but also uh, you know Celtic, and yeah. Mm -hmm. So he was setting about to write a mythology. Right. Mm -hmm. He, he said, uh, I mean, England did not have uh, as complex a mythology as Scandinavia did. And so mm -hmm. this is what he sort of wanted to, uh, to do it, to accomplish in his writings. Right. And was there a reason why he chose Scandinavia out of the different Germanic peoples? I think the Anglo-Saxons, like the Saxons at least, were from, not from Scandinavia, but from, you know, where Germany is currently. Yeah, I think that there is more, there are more sources to draw on because our main uh, sources for uh, Norse mythology are the Scandinavians, the, the Scandinavian ones. Also because they were, Christian later, so all of those mm. uh, details were not forgotten as they were on the continent in Germany and England. Oh, right. That's a good point, right? And the latest one to convert in Scandinavia is Iceland, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And Iceland had their own sagas, as we talked about before. Exactly, yeah. So, so this is perhaps why most of the sagas are from Iceland and mm -hmm. most of the writings that we have in all right. the was he influenced by Finland? Because Finland is less Germanic because there were Swedish people there, but originally the Finnish people were their own group, which was the Finno-Ugric group, which is similar to Sami people. So did he also have influences from Finland? Yes, he did, but in a much smaller measure than, um, than, the, than the others. But he did draw influence from the Kalevala, the national Finnish mm -hmm. epic. Right. Mm -hmm. Which culture did he um, have the most Finnish influence? Was it the elves, I think? I read somewhere before. I think, yeah, I, I think it was the elves, yes. Mm -hmm. I've right. not researched this very much, but yeah, I think it was the elves. Even though the, well, the elves and the, uh, the dwarves are both uh, really Norse races, but... Yeah, well, we're going to talk about this more. Right. Are all of the races in um, Middle-earth mostly Norse, or are there some that are totally not Norse? Um, well, the, the hobbits were his own invention, and the orcs, but then the, the elves and the dwarves are definitely Norse. Mm, I see. I'm not sure... Uh, about you know something like wizards or those um, primordial races, like the trees and stuff, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I don't really know where he got it from. <laughs> How about um, you know, stuff like the Witch King? Oh, the Witch King. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, hmm. I don't really know. I, it, it doesn't. It doesn't look Norse. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
Hmm, maybe if if we see them, the the parts where they are, um, you know, cursed kings, ghost kings, then yes, maybe we could say that they are Draugr, which are uh, basically the undead mm-hmm. who can be found in burial mounds. So if they have their own burial mounds with riches, then they would probably be dead kings, right? Who are right. somehow uh, made to uh, to not rest in afterlife. So if that was his source of inspiration, then yes, it is also Norse. Then he altered it quite a bit. Right. And I also thought of um, the Earl King. I think that's also from Germanic um, mm-hmm. history and mythology, but I don't think it's Norse. I was thinking of the Earl King as a potential inspiration for the Witch King. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Earl King, I think, is mostly from like places like Germany. It's not mm-hmm. from Norse mythology, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And another question we have here is, did Tolkien's dwarves influence your Norse characters in any ways since they are inspired by Norse culture? Um, yeah, so to, to answer the question, uh, we can talk a bit about uh, Tolkien's dwarves. Uh, so yeah, he did take them directly from Norse myth, but it's, uh, it's interesting that um, well, the, the, the elves and the dwarves in Norse mythology are not uh, so clearly delineated as they are in Tolkien's. Uh, about the elves, we know very, very little from Norse mythology. So uh, basically Tolkien uh, took the dwarves sort of as they were because they were uh, master craftsmen just like Tolkien represented them with an affinity for metalworking and mining. And they were also very greedy and uh, they could trick people into different things. And they also had uh, magical powers. They could uh, transform, for example, the dragon Favnir, um, who, who fights um, Sigurd uh, of the Volsungs, is a dwarf. And uh, he has a, um, a brother who can transform into an otter. And then there are other dwarves who can transform into objects. So they also have magical Mm -hmm. powers. And they are shown in myths, building things that are also imbued with magical powers. So most of the artifacts that the Norse gods have come from the dwarves were forged by the dwarves. And we see that Freya, the goddess of fertility, uh, she she often sleeps with dwarves in order to have jewelry made by them because, you know, dwarvish jewelry was excellent and it had magical powers. So yeah, this is sort of how the dwarves are presented in, in Norse myth and they um, and, and and they trick people, you know, they are very cunning as well. And about the elves, we actually know very little, but we see what Tolkien did with them and he presented in, in his own way and he made elves his own. So, um, well, to, to answer the question, um, well, they are inspired from Norse mythology, and I don't have that much inspiration from Norse mythology, but I really, really love the, the mechanism, you know, what Tolkien did there, how he took those characters and, uh, and made them his own. So I guess in terms of 
this mechanism of creating uh, characters, then maybe in that way. Mm-hmm. Right, definitely. So it was mostly just about the character creation process rather than, you know, anything specific about a particular character Tolkien had that influenced yours. Yes, I think so, because Tolkien basically took uh, characters or races which are mostly symbolic in uh, Norse mythology, and then he gave them personalities. So yes, his dwarves are influenced, are, uh, sorry, characterized by, uh, you know, the same passion for crafting and mining and all that, but then he also gives them separate personalities. So sure, they have racial traits, but Mm -hmm. then... They are their own people. So I guess, I guess in this way, this is what I I did with my characters as well, because I have a lot of, you know, Viking warriors, but then they are not uh, similar <laughs> to each other, all of them. And when I say Viking, I mean uh, the, the people who go raiding, mm-hmm. you know, even though I have several characters who are actually into this activity, their their views on the activity itself and on everything else are very different. Exactly. So, yeah, so, mm-hmm. so they're just not meant to be symbols, but you right. make them people. Right, exactly. So, you know, example would be Ingvar versus Hakon. <laughs> yes. yes, 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 very much so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And another class of people you have in your series is Sears, you know, Eyjolf's, um foster mother and himself and Valdis. Yeah, that's very true. And I also try to make their uh, worldviews different from each other because uh, in uh, in Norse sources, um, there there is no you know general characteristic of seers. Yes, maybe they are generally seen as cunning people. So you don't you shouldn't trust everything they say. But beyond that, they are not uh, well, presented as very similar to each other. They are yes, they do mostly appear as as symbols. So not not many of them have personalities. But this is what I tried to to reflect. You know how, how they approach their profession differently. Mm-hmm. Finally as we kind of touched upon at the beginning of this podcast, what similarities between historical and fantasy world building are there? How does research inform both and what are the differences? So I think that these are two genres which are quite similar because they uh, they bring in front of the reader, uh, like we said, situations that you would never been in places that you will never see and uh, a world which often functions under rules different from our own. So uh, for these reasons, I think these genres are not for everyone because the, the leap in imagination and, and immersion has to be greater for say uh, a story taking place in present day London or New York or or some other place that we've seen a lot of of movies and a lot of fiction <laughs> on and you know sometimes we feel like we know that place even though we don't really know it you know so uh, so 
for these two genres, you need that much discussed willing suspension of disbelief that Coleridge was talking about, right, to, uh, to infuse a, a human interest and a semblance of truth into a uh, fantasy setting so as to, uh, to help the reader connect with all those uh, otherworldly things. So um, in this way, yeah, they are very similar and you have to be quite rigorous in uh, both world building and the way in which you deliver at that to the reader so as to keep that emotion and immersion in spite of uh, the amount of world building. So yeah, this, this is definitely one, one similarity. Mm -hmm. Did you do more world building for Sons of Disobedience or Lucky Wolf? Definitely Sons of Disobedience because Lucky Wolf focuses on two characters. Uh, Eolf and Dingbot, whereas Sons of Disobedience has a greater scope in itself because it shows the, the process of, um, you know, Christianity, the, the conversion to Christianity of Norway and how we have uh, King Olaf trying to accomplish this on the one hand, and then we have the uh, the dissidents on the others. So on the other hand, so um, it, it's supposed to show uh, more characters and the whole country instead of just two people. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely greater in scope, and this is why it requires quite a bit of world building, and it's much more difficult to write. And mm -hmm. as you know, I've been working on and off on this for more than 10 years now mm -hmm. and this is why i've had to distance myself from it because i felt that there was so much world building and so many characters and i needed first to really know them and to really know the world that i'm writing about before actually writing the novel because my first attempt was pretty messy so i i want my second attempt to be more like lucky wolf but at, at a greater scale but right keep the same uh level of readers connection to the characters right i think it's harder to do because there's so many characters as you discussed and three viewpoints not just you know two mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And um, it's, it's sort of similar to the difference between Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. right? Because The Hobbit is more uh, focused on a group of characters and doesn't really show the, the whole scale. And then, but then The Lord of the Rings show the whole world, you know, s struggling with, mm -hmm. uh, with Sauron and... Uh, it, it's it's on a much grander scale. Absolutely. As Ren said last time, you know, um, The Hobbit is much more micro and more intimate because it's one person's exactly. journey, not, you know, a billion different people's perspectives and journeys. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Right, exactly. And I guess, you know, just to see the books behind you, I think we see Lucky Wolf in hard copy and a bunch of Tolkien books. Oh yeah, that's right, exactly. So we have the Lord of the Rings trilogy, 
the Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, uh, the Book of Lost Tales in two volumes, the Silmarillion and the Hobbit. And then you also have Finding Sam. Yes, I saw it. Yes. Very <laughs> exciting to see all of them on the shelf. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, me too. I know. It's amazing. Congratulations on having it printed out again. Thank you so much. And then the same to you with Finding Sam. It's great yeah. to see them side by side. It is. It's very exciting. But yes, um, do you think there's any other points you want to cover or is this around about it for this podcast? Of course, there are always more things to cover, <laughs> but I think that we have summed it up all right. Yeah, I think so. I think maybe we can have more Tolkien podcasts in the future, maybe talking about the cultures in Middle Earth in more depth and maybe comparing them to, you know, your own work. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Or or we could just choose some some stories, you know, like the the book reviews that we did and we can review one specific book or one specific story I'm, I'm mainly thinking about the children of Hurin which I mentioned that I'm very fond of right time. exactly so we could talk about that that would be very interesting yeah yeah indeed right all right thank you so much thank you bye okay goodbye